0: seems so familiar, everyone now. Uh, Once uh, we were all strangers and now we're not. Yet no one said anything, only the rain has been familiarizing us uh, to this day. So I did write a poem yesterday on my day off for you. Since, f- frankly, there's really no days off, you know, and you know, uh, it was that was all just a, kind of a ploy, you know, in our lives somehow that uh, there was uh, something else going on. True. So I called it all day. It's <laughs> still all day. There is this leaning forward, checking it again and again. This leaning forward. Could we bear a new beginning or a dreaded end? I was thinking. Oops, that could be a problem. (laughs) Always this imagining, having learned how to keep it simple, sitting on a bench near the hall, tree miraculously budding, loosening my grip on these sense doors and fickle thoughts, sitting in the tranquil presence of my own body. Breath, breathing itself, remembering this leaning into time, this leaning into time, only a habit. We sat together. Awareness, these sense doors, this grand and marvelous world, studying this inner and outer landscape, hoping to find something. But then there was just "fui" and wow. Couldn't find a thing. Some grand awakening will have to wait. Fui. (laughs) (laughs) I knew this was so simple, very simple. A clear mind seeing for miles and miles. A mysterious heart holding everything in its open spaciousness, anchoring this awareness in the body, knowing the ease, knowing the ease as the destination. So I practice not moving into tomorrows, no leaning into time, planning some pleasure or impossible escape, but resting in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease, confident in how it goes. So I thought this would be a nice uh, rainy day for some storytelling. You know, I was going to say many, many years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Just a few years ago, uh, I had had this wish from uh, probably when I was twenty, twenty-one, 21. I had read Lama Govinda's book on... Uh, th- this uh, trip he made in Tibet and that uh, he had gone to be touched as a pilgrim uh, by a mountain there. And the mountain is called Kailash. And uh, in the old texts, whether you go back into the Upanishads or the Vedas or uh, through um, uh, Many of the Buddhist texts that uh, they sometimes refer to it as Meru, uh, which is kind of mythical mountain, as you would have Mount Olympus be. You know. But always in my mind, there was this uh, mountain that carried all kinds of possibilities, and maybe it was just, you know, they have this story. In both, I think, in all traditions, uh, it's uh, the blind men and the elephant. You know that story. It's actually told in uh, whether it's the in the Sufi tradition or the Hindu tradition or in the Buddhist tradition. And one of the typical ones, and uh, in actually in the Buddhist text, they talk about uh, six blind men that are uh, sent to uh, uh, an elephant. And that they go and each of them, you know, one of them touches the head, another ear and the tusk and one of the legs and the stomach and the tail. And they all ro- report back something different. And uh, in the little Buddhist uh, kind of rendition of this is they argue about it and how it is, you know, each kind of holding to their views of how Uh, that elephant is. And so I'd like to just refer to that because I only know a piece of elephant here. And we're talking about something uh, incredibly grand uh, beyond uh, the uh, perspective of individuals. Uh, But not to hold anything uh, as just one, as just a leg or a tail or head. You know, that's uh, kind of the story. So I tell this story because for me the uh, practice of um, pilgrimage was to go to this mountain and that somehow this mountain had the power uh, to, des- to actually uh, be a practice of forgiveness, uh, to forgive almost all my whole lineage of uh, my own family and my confusions and everything and somehow that we have to somehow go on these journeys so that we can um, uh, dissolve uh, our past and uh, re-establish ourselves as those that have just been caught by one piece of the elephant and that th- this is much bigger than any of you, any of us here can imagine. That we sit in kind of this uh, grand place uh, with these uh, kind of limited views of one piece of information or some story or something you brought in that you've been untangling uh, that is really about something much, much bigger. So uh, I uh, set off with, a, I actually uh, had a group that I took and, and it was quite um, uh, inspiring understanding that whenever you undertake a pilgrimage, you have to come up against difficulties. And one of the things at the time was that uh, I suspect that I had many difficulties I was taking with me, you No. Know that I was carrying up the mountain. But there was also this idea that somehow, like this mountain that we're sitting on here, that it has the power, in some sense, uh, to liberate, uh, to forgive, to uh, give space, and for us to uh, be able uh, to recognize the, uh, that it's bigger than, the, in a sense, kind of the smallness that uh, we get caught in, you know. Uh, the practice uh, of going on this pilgrimage uh, became very difficult because uh, my body basically uh, broke down somewhat. And uh, it was just prior to actually being diagnosed with uh, cancer, which I'm fine now. But I I think it was all part of a uh, culmination of uh, desires to uh, free myself. And I reflect this back to you because I really consider this here as somehow, what are you doing here? You know? Uh, What is it that's kind of called you uh, to come and uh, I suspect it's some piece of an elephant that calls you here uh, that um, can concretize Uh, what you experience uh, or can open you up to something that's beyond what you kind of have uh, noticed or held onto here in some way or brought in with you. And as stories goes, I go and and, um, through quite a bit of difficulty you know, I'll relate one thing. We were coming down the mountain, and and um, one of the amazing things is our. We had, I think, there were twenty-one of us and forty uh, Nepalese with us in our first leg of the journey before we entered Tibet and crossed over the Himalayas uh, uh, down into the uh, high plateau of Tibet. And as we were descending into to where you cross the river into Tibet, uh, we had to leave before dawn in the dark with with sort of head headlights and and to climb on up and go over this uh, seventeen thousand foot pass uh, to drop down into tibet and the Our guides said, You know we have to leave very early and we have to no time for tea now that 's serious, you know <laughs> And uh, probably it's, they started moving at four o'clock and then they were packing up tents and, and, and um, they actually, except for the porters, had to leave us at the border there, a bridge that crossed over into Tibet. And they didn't come down with us, just the, the, um, the guides. And the reason was that it was a very steep kind of mountain. And what happens is it warms up uh, in the morning. Then, uh, again, the Himalayas are extremely young and uh, sort, of the, sort of the two continents smashing together with these high mountains. And uh, the, uh, these rocks would dislodge and they would come down so fast that uh, you could hear, but you couldn't see. And then suddenly this rock could fly by you. And, uh, of course, they didn't tell us, that they, the porters, of exactly what we were going through and that the group before us, which had been a year before that, uh, that a, a German woman had been hit by a rock and thrown over the side and broken her hip. You know, So we went down through this very, it was actually very treacherous and unknown to us, and no one got hurt. Uh, one person had a, there was a large rock that uh, right in front of her, several feet, went flying by, you know. And, um, and so it made the, these little pieces of the journey uh, real. You know, it wasn't things like sometimes we sit here and, uh, you know, the fear comes up in us uh, and it comes up Uh, When we really have had like a really, um, uh, where everything has been centered and we're really together, and the next moment, you know, an hour later or two hours later, our bodies are vibrating and there is this, you know, tremendous, um, uh, you know, all the concentration seems to have gone out the window and there is this just shaking that goes on. And that shaking is, whether it's in the body, mind, or whatever, it's actually uh, a fear that arises and um, is uh, no different uh, than going down that mountainside. You know? And I had actually a, a pretty difficult time. But uh, it had snowed before we had flown in, and maybe nine or ten days later, uh, we began this circumambulation around this, really is a holy mountain. There's, uh, it's, there's nothing sort of visually up in the, tran- what they call the Trans-Himalayas, uh, that for, they say for 10,000 years, uh, pilgrims uh, from Persia to uh, all of the Hindu, uh, a kind of pantheon that they have gone on pilgrimage to this mountain, but the problem with the mountain is that the plateau is fifteen thousand five hundred feet, and uh, the as you do this circumambulation, it gets up to I don't know eighteen seven or something like that. So it's actually quite you know we don't our bodies aren't made for that you know so. Um, and there'd also been a huge snowstorm. And we got up a uh, little over halfway around it. And by that time, I had, uh, see, I, I guess the word is equipment failure. I had a boot that had uh, disintegrated on me. And uh, I had uh, some altitude uh, uh, sickness and uh, I was recovering from an abscess uh, tooth, uh, thanks to Western antibiotics. And so at this point, uh, there was a group that said, well, we can't go on, you know, so we stopped. And then, um, so six of them took off and went on. And we couldn't take our yaks because uh, the yak herder said, well, if one yak breaks a leg, that's and that 's a thousand dollars. It was a very clear message to us. We had a lot of yaks. <laughs> you know so we decided that those who were you know able enough could go on up over the pass and, and complete the circumambulation and this lifetime I still i 'm going to complete this circumambulation you know i 'm going back to <laughs> 2014 <laughs> to try again to go around but the journey here uh, at that point was to actually say, okay, I can't go on. And for me, that was huge. It was something that for 40 years I was uh, had some uh, interest in. So there was a monastery at the end there. And uh, so I was able to go up to the monastery. I said, well, I'll go up and teach in this monastery. Well, this was the cave of Milarepa mm-hmm. and uh, was uh you know, it was a whole temple built around this little cave, you know, uh where Milarepa had taught. And so I got the privilege and the uh llamas there were really sweet and and uh took us in and kind of set us up and it was snowing outside and so we had all it look we sort of looked like these uh, fluff balls, you know, with with uh, the R E I north face uh you know. And thinking that, oh, it was cold, it was really cold, and miserable. And, I, and here, Milarepa, they called him the uh, cotton clad uh, because he just wore white cotton, you know. Uh, and um, here were we all kind of puffed up in our uh, down specials, you know. And I got to teach. And uh, sort of being in that position, Uh, What was it that was really uh, the heart of how this works? And so there are three pieces that uh, I'd like to just explore with you because they were the things I taught there and I think would be uh, important in um, exploring on some level. And they are, first of all, uh, ease. Uh, that ease is one of the fundamentals to this. Another one is vividness, which, has to, which is, really has to do with our mind training. And then the third one is spaciousness. Now, in the tradition, they hold these three. Uh, they talk about very much about uh, the mind uh, being this. But I personally don't see it that way, and I'll explain why. First of all, um, from what I know of these teachings, and what I know of the possibility of you sitting here, is that ease isn't something that we um, make or create in any way. It is something that is already naturally present uh, when, uh, in essence, we sit back uh, and connect with uh, the body or the physical experience uh, of um, what is it? It's a uh, the body can be pleasant, unpleasant can have uh, uncomfortable uh, truths about it but Uh, It is a great teacher uh, of present experience. Uh, You can't have a physical sensation that's in the future. It's not about you thinking now, oh, now you start this little, I hope uh, you haven't, but you probably have, about a retreat sort of coming towards its... Place where it ends. And so the tendency is to want to lean into that, to move somehow into future. You know. If you'll simply allow your attention to kind of be on your, whether you're on a zafu or a chair or a bench, uh, to put your attention on your butt. You know, it's as simple as that. There's your butt sitting there. You know? And that to actually bring the attention to that and not to struggle with that, but just to allow that uh, to be uh, true. You know? And it's really about the ease in itself. So it means that somehow uh, in these fundamental practices there is this truth that you can just Make that contact and notice that uh, there is a result from it, a very clear, distinctive result, you know. And it has no need for, really, past or future. Uh, It's enough as it is. And sometimes, of course, it comes unbid and make a lot of noise like right then. You know? And we get all involved in it. But it itself, uh, in its simplest form, uh, will always... uh, Uh, This is part of secret teachings from Milarepa's cave up at about 17,000 feet and you've been walking around in it all these years so that it is, you know, this is a birthright you have uh, this ease that's built in through your body We talk about this as, uh, in the second kind of part, this is vividness, uh, which is uh, the mind training that we're doing here. And the mind training is complicated, in essence, because it has the kind of uh, hindrances and the the way that um, we also uh, try to gain things through it. Know, that there's some kind of winning and losing uh, in uh, mind training itself, uh, and it comes uh, somewhat culturally, in the sense that uh, we we have these incredible imaginations, uh, phenomenal ability uh, to vividly remember the past, and <laughs> and construct a world upon world upon world. But the question here for me is when we talk about vividness, is there's two pieces of. One of them: how does it work? You know uh, First of all, uh, what was it in my poem? I said, <clears throat> We sat together, awareness these sense doors in this grand and marvelous world. So the mind training here is first of all to separate things out. And to separate things out it's very simple. You know, we have an outside world that, you know, from as little teeny kids uh, we looked at the outside world and we had to find a way to be safe and, uh, in essence, kind of find uh, what we needed in it, you know. (laughs) So we constructed a sense experience and a mind that was looking uh, to make sure that this was safe and we were going to get the things we needed and the love we needed. That's what we do, you know. And so things are really based on our external world and believing somehow that we'll find our happiness in that. Uh, so we manufacture uh, uh, What is this? This is kind of a reality around the elephant, one part of the elephant. And we go along and we kind of construct, we work so hard to create these, um, you know, separate identities. And then we come here and uh, we have to start by using this kind of uh, very clear and vivid mind. But uh, first of all, to begin to separate out, uh, separate first, there's the outside world. You know, and that our first attention is to scan the outside world to feel safe or get what we need. You know? And part of our practice here is the fact that we construct a world. You know, we sit here and we come here and we talk about kind of the ethics of, uh, you know, you can leave your stuff in your room. You can leave the door open. You know, nobody's going to take things. You know, uh, uh, we're not talking to each other, you know, except the teachers, of course. But uh, as far as a a constructed world, we have done the best job we could do uh, in creating a, a safety circle Uh, that is about non-harming. It's the best we can do. And with that kind of construction, then you can relax about the outside world. Food, we do the best we can in taking care of that. Uh, And even, you know, the whole thing around, uh, I used to love the fact that I didn't need a wristwatch. You know, that I could just live with the bells. And it was enough to just learn to follow uh, in the construction here of things. And so we began to release somewhat the outside. And I know uh, that's kind of tricky, but I'm just giving you the format here. And then as that safety begins to happen, then we start becoming aware of where we're aware of. And the Buddha simply said, you know, there is this fathom long body and uh, it holds uh, the suffering and also the end of suffering. And so we turn our attention around to these uh, what is known as the six Sense Doors. So you see and you smell and you taste and you hear and you have these body sensations and you have this thinking that's going on. And you begin to see that, oh, those are uh, really this sensual sphere that is where and takes in uh, the outside, and with the thinking also the inside. And then behind that, they talk about it as sensual consciousness, but uh, there is uh, the knowing that's there. And that knowing um, is not something uh, you can put your finger on. And yet, it exists. So it's not something you can locate. But it's something you can know. And so there is this possibility of knowing that there are these outside objects and that there are these sense doors that are experiencing those outside objects. And then there is the knowing of it, these three things. And we simply like the, I like the language of just uh, the awareness itself. And as we begin to trust the outside, and we begin to notice the nature of these sense doors, then there is a relaxing that happens. And so we no longer have to kind of figure it out. We don't have to know if the elephant's leg uh, is this way and this is the way it is. We don't have to say, oh, it's only this way because I felt the leg of that elephant and you felt the tusk of that elephant. No. It may be much bigger than that. And so there is this possibility, you know, Rumi has the thing, he talks about it in a little different way. He says, oh, the elephant, <clears throat> there, are, uh, there is a dark room with the elephant in it and six people go in and describe it. And of course, Rumi being Rumi, he says, well, why don't you take a candle and all go in and see what it is. And that's the way he kind of holds the mystery in some way. You know? And for us, in a sense that when we start to let the objects be and the sense doors, you know, they are impermanent phenomena that arise and our consciousness kind of goes to all of them. And there is something that's holding all this. And actually, it's not a problem. You know? And so we began to see, oh, there's ease in the body. There is also uh, ease in the mind. You know? And it's not due to the objects or the stories or the thoughts or anything else. It's just the way it is. It's just the nature of it. And it has something to do with the elephant, not the parts of the elephant. So the third part that's talked about is a language is a spaciousness. And to me, once there's kind of a sense of uh, we recognize that we always have this place, that we can recognize kind of the flow of the impermanence of things, which is really the body itself, because it's such a great teacher about that there's no time that you can uh, you can't put the same consciousness in the same body any two times it 's always something changes, so you know that, and the other is that there is the phenomenal world of the mind and uh, its thinking and its comparisons and its analysis and all that. Um, is still held in something much bigger. And so there's a way that we sort of draw back and say, oh, uh, this is a true that there's something bigger going on here. Can I somehow uh, hold this kind of mystery of, of the world and its uh, phenomena and these... Uh, ever-changing sense doors, uh, uh, this knowing of it, and that it sits in a much bigger sphere. So, the spaciousness um, to me is then when we no longer are struggling with things and there is that wakefulness, this natural non-interfering, wakefulness, uh, this natural peace and ease, you could say, uh, then uh, there's no problem here. The, it's no longer about fear or control or about anything else. It's simply about that the heart, you no, know, when there's no contraction, you know, it naturally is open. Uh, It fills the room. It fills the space. It, you know, in essence, kinds allows everything to be the way it is. You know. It also also has the capacity uh, to respond. You know, it's not uh, just. A, a non responsive thing. It's actually very responsive. You know. Somebody asked me this morning a question. They said, Why don't we talk about love more? You know. And so it's really wh- how you define it. And I love this piece around what is metta? How does that work? What is it exactly? And is a conventional thing or is it part of the spaciousness? Is it part of this oh this is such when there's no interference and I'm connected and that kind of peace and ease is there then I have room uh, not to contract uh, but to respond, to meet the world uh, in its you know uh, it's not something we can know our control. But it is something that uh, we can be touched by and also touch it back. You know. So that's pretty good, huh? You know. And sometimes you have to really work on the body as something that you have to kind of sit and wait. You know, and wait and wait. And these teachings are not something about the future. They have... An immediacy to them. And so, in the waiting itself, you, know, uh, you will know. And the mind has a tendency to make up more and more things about tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day. And the training here is to just let it go. You know, be with the rain. Uh, the, the little there's a couple trees out there with the the uh, bench in between, and they're just budding. You know, they're uh, just uh, they're uh, ready to show their uh, moment. And if you can really just be there, you know I think the fear and the confusion and the wanting it to be different or maybe trying to project something into this next week, doesn't hold much I was going to say water, but uh, you know <laughs> that's uh probably an understatement at this point but. That's simple. You know, don't make it too complicated. You know. So I think it's probably good enough for this afternoon. I'll just read you my poem. You, know. you will wake up. You know, it kind of works like that. All day is still all day. There is this leaning forward, checking it again and again. Could we bear a new beginning or a dreaded ending? I was thinking, oops, that could be a problem always this imagining, having learned how to keep it so simple. Sitting on a bench near the hall, tree miraculously budding, loosening my grip on these sense doors and fickle thoughts. Loosening my grip sitting in the tranquil presence of my own body, breath breathing itself, remembering this leaning into time, only a habit, this leaning into time, only a habit. We sat together, awareness, these sense doors, in this grand and marvelous world, studying this inner and outer landscape, hoping to find something. But then there was just "fooi" and wow. Couldn't find a thing. Some grand awakening will have to wait till next retreat, phui. I knew this was all so simple clear mind, seeing for miles and miles a mysterious heart holding everything in this open spaciousness, anchoring awareness in the body, knowing the ease as the destination. So I practice not moving into tomorrows, not leaning into time, not planning some pleasure or impossible escape, but to rest in the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease, confident of how it goes. And I made it back. (laughs) The end story. So enjoy the rain.